All right, so we are in John 15. We're going to cover verses 1 through 8. Uh, back in 2007, there was a, a computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His name was Randy Posh. Young man in his 40s, been diagnosed with cancer, terminal. He knew that he didn't have long to live. He gave a lecture, uh, a talk that he titled, Really Achieving Your Childhood Dreams. There were about 400 people, students, family members, other people from the community. When he got finished, uh, everybody told him that was amazing. They uploaded it to YouTube. It's been seen 20 million times. 20 million. They also made a book out of it called The Last Lecture. It was on the bestseller list for four years. And it's been translated into 48 different languages. Dr. Pausch did die later that year. Uh, but his words, of course, have outlived him. And you might find that surprising because, again, this is a computer science professor standing behind a lectern like I'm doing now. He's not, he's not doing song and dance. He's not doing anything innovative. He's just talking about how to live a fruitful life, how to live a life worth living. Turns out maybe that's what people are longing to hear. When somebody comes to you, somebody who's intelligent and articulate, and they say, I've just got one chance to tell you the most important thing I know, people tend to listen. In a very real way, that's what Jesus is doing in John 13 through 17. The reason I call this series Origin Story is because the things Jesus said on that Thursday night, we believe it was a Thursday night, and then did that next day, the Friday, and then the Sunday after. Those three events, that, that talk He gave to His disciples, His death, and His resurrection. That's the foundation of our faith. Jesus had one chance to tell the disciples, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know, not just about life, not just about how to be saved, but you are going to have to take over after me. So everything Jesus was saying to them, He was saying to get them ready to carry forward the movement that He was beginning. Now that's, that's a lot of pressure. That's, that's a speech you want to get right. And, and so Jesus said those things, and they apply to us as well since we're carrying on His movement as well in the footsteps of the disciples. Now here's an interesting thing before we get into the passage. Um, you may have heard this if you're a, one of those serious, serious Bible students. But you know how in speeches today, whether it's a political speech or a sermon, we tend to put the most important point in the message last. We're, we're building up, building up, 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 and just finish with this big climax. But in Israel... In Jesus' day and even in the Old Testament, when you read speeches, when you read arguments, they did what you call a chiasm. And that means the main point, the most important point, is in the middle. It's not like this. It's more like this. So you're building up to this main point, and you hit it, and then you go downward. I don't know why they did it that way. That was just the way the culture expected speech to be. But if that's true, if, if that's what Jesus was doing here in His last speech to His disciples, and Jesus was, after all, a Jewish man, so it's likely, then what we're about to read tonight is the most important thing to Him of all the things He said that night. John chapter 15, verses 1-8. through 8. So what does it say? It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you're clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So again, if Jesus was building everything toward this one point, that doesn't mean the other things He said aren't important. They all, they're all the Word of, of the Son of God. So they're all important. But if this was the main point He was trying to drive home to His disciples and to us that night, what is He saying? I think to, to put it in our terms, Jesus is telling us what a successful life really is. What is a life that is successful, a life that is meaningful, a life well-lived? See, in his culture, everything was about honor. And it was about the honor of, not just your honor, but the honor of your family, the honor of your clan, your village, your people. And so a successful life was a life where you brought honor to those groups. The opposite of a successful life is one where you disgraced them in some way, where they shunned you because you had brought disgrace to their family name or to the, to the community uh, or to the people. Which, by the way, think about that in the context of Jesus. What happened right before He was crucified? He heard His own people say, away with Him, crucify Him. Um, he took that dishonor. In their, in their eyes, he, he was the ultimate failure. He took that willingly for us. Now, I didn't even plan to say that because that's not what I'm here to preach on, but I just can't help but noticing that. Uh, so that's, that's a successful life in Jesus' terms. A successful life in Jesus' world, uh, the, the world He grew up in, would have looked like this. If you would have interviewed a first century Jew and you would have said, what are your dreams for your life? They would have said, well, I, I hope that I get to be really old someday. And someday, if, if it's a man talking, he'd say, I'll be sitting by the city gates with big mane of white hair and, and all the young men who walk by will bow their heads as they see me and whenever something needs decisions being made, you know, me and the other respected old men will, will make those decisions. And if it's a woman, she would say a, a life well lived would be, I bore lots of children who grew up to serve the Lord and brought glory and honor to His name and to our people. Now think about how different our society is today because we're not so much concerned with honor and we're not so much concerned about how we impact our community. In fact, it's almost the opposite. We're so individualistic as a culture today, we admire the person who goes against their family, who goes against their community, who goes against the standards, right? And, and is a success. So, so a success story in our culture looks like following your dreams, living out your dreams. It's, it's the young woman who says, I know my dad wants me to be an engineer, my mom wants me to be a doctor, but I want to be a rock and roll singer. And then she ends up doing it, you know, ends up winning a Grammy or whatever. Uh, it, it's the guy who breaks all the rules and yet somehow rises to the top of his company. It's very individualistic. That's, our, that's the American, or actually the Western view of success today. So what does Jesus say? In Jesus's uh, mind, it's not about money, it's not about fame, it's not about finding something you love and getting paid to do it, right? 
that sounds like a successful life to us. No, that's not what Jesus says. Nor is it about honoring your family or uh, your community or your people. All of those things are fine, but that's not what a true successful life looks like in Jesus's mind. So what is a successful life? Two things. First, he says, real success is impossible apart from me, apart from Jesus. As he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing you accomplish apart from Jesus will last. Nothing you accomplish apart from Jesus will stand the test of time. And immediately, uh, there are people who push back against that. If, if, if you're not a believer in Jesus, that sounds incredibly arrogant of Jesus to say. In fact, it would be if it wasn't true. I'll just say, if you ever hear somebody say anything like that, other than Jesus, get as far away from that person as you can because you found a classic narcissist. Well, you're no, you're no good. You're, you're worth nothing apart from me. No, that's, that's not true, unless it's Jesus, because he's the Son of God. So the world would look at that and say, uh, that can't be true, because, I mean, obviously, there, there are billionaires, there are successful business people, there are professional athletes, there are actors and movie stars, there are politicians, uh, and there are creators, inventors, uh, researchers, there are all kinds of people who do incredible things and are incredibly successful and have risen to the top of their industry and don't even acknowledge Jesus at all. So how can you say, apart from me, you can do nothing? And I think what Jesus would say is, they're like flowers cut off from the vine. You know, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Uh, you can all think, I'm sure, of vines that produce beautiful flowers or grapes, some kind of useful fruit. That's great but you cut them off from that source, they don't last. You cut off, I mean, listen, it, we just got through with Valentine's Day. Some of you probably bought or received flowers. It's great to get flowers. Fresh flowers are great. I love them. I love giving them to my wife. I love having them in the house. How long do they last? If you're lucky, a week? If you're lucky. And they're beautiful for the time they last. But if you're counting on them being there a month from now, you're going to be disappointed. So yes, it is possible to do what to this world looks like success, to accomplish things that this world calls success apart from Jesus, but it doesn't last. The, the Super Bowl champion, right? Pat Mahomes, not to pick on him, seems like a good guy. But I guarantee you there will come a time when he cannot run and throw and score touchdowns. That's just the way we're built. Our bodies have expiration dates. Uh, the, the supermodel will not always look like that. The movie star will find out nobody wants to see him anymore as an action star, no matter how many sit-ups he does. Um, the, the, the CEO finds out that his board of directors decided to go in another direction and he gets a nice severance package, but he's out. Billions of dollars vanish in bad investments. Even, even the, the inventor, even the researcher, someday they're going to find out, well, somebody smarter than me has come up with something better. Our earthly accomplishments don't last. They're not bad things, but if they're our whole life, then what do we have? And, and even if you're able to hang on to the earth's idea of success until you die, say you're the billionaire and you die and you're still worth billions, you still got to stand before God in judgment. And billions don't do you one bit of good there. Nor do your accomplishments. Nor does your reputation. None of that matters. A real successful life 
is something different. And, and so for us as Christians, I think all of you are sitting there saying, yeah, Jeff, we know this, uh, but where this hits us is we as Christians, because we live in a culture that values this kind of individualistic success, right? Success looks like uh, a bright white smile and people thinking you're attractive. Success looks like a big bank account or a corner office or a big title or a reward. None of those things are bad things. But if you see God as the way you're going to get there, right? I serve Jesus so that I can accomplish great things. No. You serve Jesus because He's the only one worth serving. And you're going to serve Him whether you end up being uh, the CEO or the custodian. That's the way to serve God. Um, again, not to pick on uh, football players, but we just got through with the Super Bowl. I always have a little pause in my heart when I love to hear these athletes stand up and say, all glory to God for this. I love to hear that. But God knows what their heart is really saying. If what they're saying is, I want to say thank you to God for enabling me to accomplish my dreams, then that's not of God. That's not what God's about. God's not there to accomplish it. I guarantee you, when, when that person, when that you know, football player was born, when that human was born, God didn't say the greatest thing you will ever accomplish is to win a game. No. If they're saying, however, you know, this is a great game. This is a great thing that's just happened to me. I'm really happy, but I want to use this opportunity to just tell people how good God is. And I'd be saying that if I was in the losing locker room. Heck, I'd be saying it if I was in the hospital and could never play again. God is good. Then that is of God. So apply that to your own life. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, okay, right now I'm earning uh, five figures, but if I really serve God, He's going to enable me to, to earn six. Right now, I'm single, but if I really serve God, He's going to bring Mr. or Ms. Wright into my life. He's going to straighten out my kids so that they're not a source of stress to me, but a source of pleasure. He's going to, he's going to give me the, the things that I want. He's going to make my dreams come true. That's not the way it works. You're, you're believing in the world's version of success instead of God's version when you say those things. Now, having said that, if those things happen, praise God for them, give Him thanks, but always keep your eye on the giver and not the gift. I think one place to help us, one way to help us is, is to say over and over in our minds, what I want in life is not what's most important. What God wants in my life is what's most important. Lord, it's not about you making my dreams come true. It's about me becoming the person you dreamed of me being. That's what success looks like. And that, that's my second point, or that's Jesus' second point. Success is impossible apart from Jesus, but number two, success is about character, not accomplishment, because he says, we'll bear much fruit. If you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. And for years, I thought fruit meant results. So a, a fruit-bearing pastor was a pastor who brought a lot of people into his church built a big church. A fruit-bearing Christian was a Christian who could, who could put notches on his gun belt and say, look at all these people I've led to the Lord. And that's a good thing. If you've got the gift of evangelism or if you're just a person who's a, an effective witness, hallelujah, I want more of you in our church. I want more of you in the world. But that's not what fruit refers to. You look it up. When Jesus, when the New Testament talks about fruit, it's always talking about character. The fruit 
that we produce is the character of Jesus Christ. And perfect example, Galatians 5, 25 through 26, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You didn't say the fruit of the Spirit is a bigger church. The fruit of the Spirit is a bigger budget for your church. Nicer buildings, more staff. He said the fruit of the Spirit are these qualities, these characteristics. By the way, if you get my daily devotionals, that's what I'm writing about right now. And if you don't get my daily devotionals, go ahead and start. So, success is about character, not accomplishment. Here's another way to put it. And I, read, I didn't make this up. Somebody, some smarter person than me wrote this. But there are two kinds of qualities you can pursue in life. There's resume qualities and there's eulogy qualities. So your resume qualities are the things that you can put down when you're applying for a job. I, I went to this school. I got this degree. I, I earned summa cum laude. Um, I started, uh, here's my work, uh, work resume. Here are all the places I've worked. Here's the things I accomplished, the projects I completed, uh, the levels I attained, the, reward, the awards I won. Uh, here's, here's how much I've been paid, so just so you know how much you're going to have to pay to get me from my present job to this one. Those are, your, those are your resume qualities. But when you die, I do a lot of funerals and I'm honored to do them. When you die and someone gets up and talks about your life, they're not going to talk about that stuff. They're going to talk about how you treated your family. They're going to talk about how you treated them. They're going to talk about your faith in God. They're going to talk about how you helped people. You've heard eulogies. You've probably delivered a eulogy. You didn't get up and say, Bob went to Rice University, and Bob uh, was a project manager at, you know, at, at Johnson's Lumberyard or whatever. They're going to talk about your characteristics. And the point is, resume qualities are not bad. You need them but they can't be your life. They can't be your goal. So uh, I, I realize now I'm using a lot of sports analogies and I try not to do that, but uh, I'm switching sports. So Ted Williams, some of you remember Ted Williams, right? Boston Red Sox. Ted Williams grew up in San Diego, California, uh, kind of a, a neglected kid, didn't get along with his parents, uh, but decided early in life that he, his goal for life was to be the greatest hitter who ever lived. And he studied hitting like it was a science. Nobody knew. I mean, anybody who knew Ted Williams could tell you. Nobody could talk about hitting like he could. He would just talk and talk and talk because he'd studied it. He'd analyzed it. And he told everybody, someday I want people, when they see me walk down the street, say, there goes the greatest hitter who ever lived. And some say he got there. He was definitely one of the top ten. But you know what? His team never won a World Series. Great, great hitter, didn't care about base running, didn't care about defense, didn't really care about the team. He was a difficult person. Didn't, nobody really got along with him. And I use that analogy to talk about us, how you can achieve all the things you set out to achieve if you're stubborn enough and if you get the right breaks, but you don't accomplish anything lasting. I wonder if on his deathbed, Ted Williams thought to himself, I sure am glad I spent so much time studying hitting. Or I wonder if instead he thought, I wish I would have spent some more time with some people. I wish there were more people who I loved. Again, not to pick on him, because we all have that tendency in us. 
Success is about character, not accomplishment. The question is not, what am I doing? The question is, what am I becoming? Who am I becoming? That's the measure of success. So how do we achieve it? How do we achieve that real success? Jesus, again, gives us a couple of instructions. First, he says, submit to God's pruning. He says, every branch that does bear fruit, he, meaning God, prunes that it may bear more fruit. And I think a lot of you know what pruning is, uh, but for those of you that don't, just remember the, the great freeze of 2020, you know, when, when we were under ice and we totally lost our minds. And, and then afterwards, you and I had a lot of brown plants in our yards, didn't we? Now, my daughter is uh, an amateur gardener and she pays attention to these kinds of things. So she read a bunch of, did a bunch of research and she came back to me and she said, Dad, what they're telling us is we need to cut off all the brown stuff. Yeah, just go out and just cut everything that's brown because it's dead. And if the plant doesn't keep trying to expend its energy trying to put new life into a dead branch, then it will thrive. And so we went out. That was pretty simple. I'm good at destroying things. So, uh, you know, we went out and we cut all the brown stuff off. But pruning is more than that. Real pruning. A master gardener, when they prune, some of you probably fit into this category, they'll attack what looks like healthy branches. You watch a master gardener, you'll see beautiful leaves and flowers on the floor, and you're thinking, what are you doing? Are you trying to kill it? And then you come back a short time later, and that, that plant is even more beautiful than it was before because they knew, they knew where to cut. You notice, I don't do that because I don't know where to cut. It's easy when you tell me just cut what's brown. But God's the master gardener in this analogy. He knows what is in your life that looks like it's useful, that looks like it's actually uh, non-negotiable. I can't live without that. And God says, oh, actually, yes, you can. Let me show you. In fact, you'll be better off without it. Now, this is not, this is not the best news you've ever heard, right? This is not what you wanted to hear tonight. But it is true that God prunes those He loves. So I gave you a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's in your notes. Uh, it's not... It's a totally different analogy, but it's so brilliant. I just wanted you to have it. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it out loud to you, uh, but I'm not going to make many comments about it because I can't say it better than he did. By the way, uh, I'm not going to say it in British, but when you read it in your head, it sounds British, okay? Just so you know. So Lewis said, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what He's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing up a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And y'all, that's so, there's so much there. I mean, you just take that home and ponder that tonight. You'll get more out of that paragraph than anything else I'll say. But the point is, sometimes the process of becoming like Jesus hurts. Sometimes you think, well, I didn't sign on for this, Lord. Well, actually you did. You just didn't know what it meant to be like Christ. And, and I want to clarify, that doesn't mean that anytime you go through any kind of pain, God did it to make you stronger. That's the mistake 
some Christians make is, and please don't ever do this, when they see a friend, they see a Christian brother or sister going through a time of pain, they go up and say, oh, God must love you that he's putting you through this. Boy, he's got, yeah, he is, he's got a great, this is all the will of God. You just need to praise him for it. That's a good way to get your teeth knocked out. And, and, and I wouldn't feel sorry for you, frankly, because you don't say that to someone who's suffering. Because the truth is, first of all, it doesn't help. But number two, we don't know that it's true. There's a lot of evil things that happen in this world because it's a broken world. I'll just give you three scenarios. A Christian gets falsely accused of something illegal or unethical. Falsely accused. Did God do that to strengthen them? Uh, a Christian gets injured in an accident at the hands of a drunk driver. Did God command that guy to get drunk and get behind the wheel? Or even more so, you lose a family member because of a senseless murder. Did God ordain that? I don't think God ever ordained sin. I think the Bible tells us the opposite. There are things that happen in life that are the result of us living in a sinful world. They are not God saying, you know, Jeff's life is just a little too easy right now. I need to shake things up for him. So don't, don't ever make that mistake in your own life and certainly don't make that mistake of trying to tell somebody else, let me tell you what God is doing to you. That, that's not your business. That's not your place. But the good news about this is when you're in the vine, whatever happens in your life has meaning. It is redemptive. It is, it is able to be redeemed by a holy God. Even if it wasn't something He wanted to happen, it's just the result of living in a sinful world, He is able to take it and work it toward redemption. He may not have ordained it, but He's not going to waste it either. In fact, I've got two more quotes on this um, that just mean a lot to me. One of them was from John Piper. Uh, John Piper's he's retired now, but for many years of... Uh, Baptist preacher in Minnesota. He's a Calvinist, but they, you know, the Lord loves them too. Um, <laughs> John Piper, was, years ago, was diagnosed with cancer and eventually overcame it. But those of you who've dealt with cancer, you know, going in, you don't know the outcome. You're going in for treatments. You don't know what's going to happen. When he got diagnosed, he wrote an article, posted it online. The title was, Lord, Don't Let Me Waste My Cancer. Lord, don't let me waste my cancer. So his mindset was, whether you heal me or not, that's up to you. If you heal me, I got more years to live. If you don't, then I get to be with you. That's not what I'm worried about. What I'm worried about is I don't want to be so fearful. I don't want to be so selfish that I miss what you're trying to do through this. Because I know you're not, you're not going to waste it. You're going to do something redemptive. But if I'm feeling sorry for myself the whole time, if I'm complaining the whole time, if I'm distracted if I'm angry, then I might miss what you're trying to do in my life, and I don't want to miss it. I don't want to waste this opportunity. Now, that's the first quote. The second quote, I don't know who said this. This is a story uh, that I heard from another preacher. He, he, had, he was talking about a, an African Christian, a guy who had grown up in Africa, came to know the Lord in Africa, served God over there, and then moved over here for a few years. And then this preacher asked him, he said, what do you, what do you think... What do you think is the main difference between Christians in America and Christians where you're from? And here's what he said. I've never forgotten this. He said, Christians in my country, um, let me start over. He said, Christians in your country, pray for the burden of suffering to be lifted off of their shoulders. Christians in my country pray for stronger shoulders to bear the burden of suffering. 
See, in America, you just assume, I'm not supposed to suffer. This is, this is, this is out of bounds. Lord, get it away from me. Whereas where I'm from, we just assume that there's going to be suffering, so God, make me up to it. Give, make me strong enough to bear it and to bear it well. Submit to God's pruning. Doesn't mean it's wrong to pray for healing. Doesn't mean it's, we shouldn't celebrate hallelujah when we're delivered, but in the meantime, let's not waste that opportunity. But number two, and this is the main point, achieving success starts with abiding in Christ. Abide in Christ. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. If you abide in Him, if you abide in Him, you will bear much fruit. And y'all, there have been countless sermons preached and books written about what exactly it means to abide. And I've heard some people say, you know, abide just means remain. It just means stick around. So as long as you don't just consciously walk away from Jesus, you're going to grow. You're going to become a fruit-bearing believer. You just need to make sure you're with Jesus. Just don't walk away from Him and you'll bear fruit. And that sounds good. The problem is, I, I don't see it happening. The problem is it doesn't seem to be true because I think we all know of people who have never made a conscious decision to walk away from the Lord, but they're not bearing fruit. And, and I can testify that there have been times in my life when my, my own spiritual life has grown stagnant. I didn't make some conscious decision, Lord, I'm, I'm done with you. It's just I woke up one day and realized, man, it's been a long time since I've really grown since I've really seen the evidence of God working in my heart. So what did Jesus mean if He meant more than just stick with me? Well, I think it's helpful, as always, to think about the context. The mistake we make with so much of Scripture, and this is a, a prime example, is we take that verse, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit, and we think, ah, Jesus is telling us how to become like Him. Well, what does He mean by abide? Well, start by saying, what did he mean to those 11 guys who he was talking to right that moment? What was he saying to those 11 men? Because remember, Judas has already left. He's already gone to the priests to lead them to Jesus. These 11 guys sitting around the room, what has he been saying to them? He said, I'm leaving you. You're not going to have me around anymore to ask questions, to tell you what to do, to give you power. But the good news is you're going to get something better. You're going to get the Spirit of God. Not just me in a human body, but the Spirit who lives in you and is with you all the time. The Spirit is coming. Jeff Russell, last week when he taught, he talked about this, about the Spirit coming into us, the Counselor. He'll teach us all things. He'll bring things to our remembrance. He'll give us power. He'll convict us of sin. Jesus has told them this. They're getting the message for the first time. Oh, things are going to change. I'm not going to have a physical human Jesus next to me, but I'm going to have His Spirit in me. And then He says, as long as you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. So what does he mean by that? In context, he means if you walk with the Spirit of God, if you're guided by Him, then you'll bear fruit. Then you'll live a life of success. But when you go out on your own and you do things your way, you're going to wither. You're going to die. It, it, when you think about it, it's almost identical to Galatians 5. You remember we talked about Galatians last year. Galatians for most of the book, is about avoiding legalism. You know, we will, it's, it's so much simpler to make Christianity into a, a list of rules, do's and don'ts, because then we know who's in and who's out. But that's not the way God wants us to live. Christianity is not meant to be a rules-based 
life. It's supposed to be a relationship with a real person. So, so Paul over and over again says, forget about righteousness through the law. That's a dead end. Instead, in chapter 5, he says, keep in step with the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit of God. Same thing. And, and again, if you walk in step with the Spirit, you produce the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you bear much fruit. They're saying the same things. Jesus said it first. Paul's just saying it in a different way. So what does that mean to keep in step with the Spirit? What does that mean to abide in Christ? I, I, think, I think it means just stay in contact with Him. Make sure every day you're doing something to stay in contact with the Lord. I, I think it comes down to five things. This is me. This is not the Bible. But I think I can back it up with Scripture. And that's pray, study, worship, love, and obey. Pray. When you pray, what are you doing? You're saying, Lord, I can't do without you. When you study God's Word, you're saying, Lord, change my mind. You know, uh, change my heart through the renewing of my mind. When you, when you worship, you're connecting with God. You're remembering He's bigger than you are. You're, tell, you're remembering how great He is, that he's, that he's so much more worthy, so much more beautiful than all these other things you get distracted with. When you love others, you're loving God. He accepts it as love for Him. And when you obey His commandments, you're showing Him love. You're not just telling Him love. You're showing Him love. So that's how you abide in Christ. You pray, you study, you worship, you love, you obey. You just keep doing those things every single day. Every single day. You might say, well, that's a lot. Do you brush your teeth? I bet you do. I, I, I look around the room. I, I see some people who have teeth in their heads. I mean, I know we're in East Texas, but we still got pretty good teeth. We do this, this discipline because we want to keep these things, right? And, and yet these disciplines that I just mentioned are so much more powerful, so much more worthy of our time. Now, let me address something. You may have noticed it if you were paying close attention, but in verse 7, he says, if you abide in me, you can ask anything and I'll give it to you. And I'm going to say the same thing that I did a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 14, verse 14, when Jesus said, if you pray in my name, I'll give you whatever you ask. And I told you back then, he wasn't writing a blank check. He wasn't saying, if you ask for whatever you want, even if it's something you shouldn't have, even if it's something that hurts other people, even if it's something that I know won't be good for you, I'm going to give it because you said my name. It's the magic words. That's not what he's saying. The name of Jesus, the names in that culture reflected character. Jesus is saying, if you pray in the way I would pray, if you pray for the things that, that reflect my values, you pray in my name, then you're going to get it because you're working alongside me. So when Jesus says, if you abide in me, you're going to get what you pray for. What he's saying is, if you're abiding in me, your thoughts are starting to change into the thoughts that I was already having. You're starting to see that the things that you just thought you couldn't live without, well, maybe actually you'll be better off without those things and you're starting to want the things that I want for you to begin with. So when you abide in me, you start to think like me, and you start to ask for the things that I'm already in, on the way of doing, so you're no longer at war with me trying to negotiate, right? I promise I'll go to church every Sunday from now on if you'll just give me this. You're not at war with God anymore, but instead you're working alongside Him. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. And that's where you need to be. That's a fruit-bearing life, and that's prayer that bears fruit. So, last question. What if we don't abide in Christ? What's the penalty? 
Because it sure sounds in verse 6 like people who don't abide in Christ are lost. Because he says, they'll be cut off, they'll be thrown into the fire. But that would imply that the way you get saved is by bearing fruit. That would imply that uh, at the end of days, when we stand before God, He's going to look at us and say, okay, um, how much joy did you have? How much kindness did you evidence? How much peace? How much patience? That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? That would mean that we earn salvation by growing in these qualities. I think the opposite is true. It's not, it's not about us earning salvation. It's about these fruits are the evidence of our salvation. We're cut off, we're thrown in the fire and burned because it turns out we never knew Him. And we can tell that because there's never been any fruit. I, I read this quote in one of my uh, commentaries. I wanted to share it with you. Um, a fruitless life is prima facie evidence that one is not really a believer. Now, I don't speak Latin, but I have watched Law and Order. So I know prima facie means at first sight. Basically, it's if you hear a bang and you walk into a room and you see a guy laying on the floor dead and another guy standing over him with a smoking pistol, you're pretty sure you know what happened, right? Prima facie evidence says that guy just committed murder. Now, it could be there's a slight chance somebody from outside shot the guy laying on the ground and the guy holding the gun has just fired back at him. And that's, you know, there's other things that could be happening. But from all intents and purposes, for, uh, from all outward appearances, that person committed murder. What that commentary is saying is when you look at someone's life and you see no fruit of the Holy Spirit, you don't see love, you don't see patience, you don't see peace, you don't see joy, you don't see self-control, then you say, I need to witness to this person. They're not saved. Now they may actually be. Maybe they're a Christian. Maybe they're just backslidden. Maybe they're just introverted and you can't tell. I don't know. But lack of fruit is evidence that they don't know Christ and you should be worried about them. But even more importantly, because let's face it, at the end, God's the one that's going to judge who gets into heaven and who doesn't. If you're spending a lot of time questioning the salvation of others, you're wasting your time. This is about examining your own self. And, and I, I, let me just say this, and then I'm done. Um, there's a certain percentage of Christians, in my opinion, it's always the wrong ones, but a certain percentage of Christians who constantly wrestle with doubting their own salvation. And I say it's always the wrong ones because they always tend to be the sweetest and, and most sincere Christians I know, um, almost always. And, and I'll give you an example. I don't think she'd mind me telling, telling this story, but my wife, when she was, like me, she got saved as a little girl. And then as a teenager, she started to doubt her salvation. Now, this was a young lady who knew more Bible than most adults, right? Who was committed to Christ, who was, I mean, just rock solid in her faith. And yet, it bothered her that she couldn't remember the reasons why she walked the aisle at eight, nine years old. She couldn't remember anything she was thinking back then. She vaguely remembered getting baptized, didn't remember why. And she thought, I wonder if I knew what I was doing back then. And... 
at the time, she did what she knew to do. She just she walked the aisle again at 16, 17 years old and said, listen, I just want to get this nailed down. I want to make sure. Now I definitely know what I'm doing. And she got baptized again. I have no problem with that. I've done that kind of thing before uh, with, with church members. Have, I've had similar conversations. I've gotten to the point in life now, though. And if I could go back in time and, and talk to little 16-year-old Carrie, here's what I would say. I would say, the question is not, what was going on in your life on the day you got baptized? The question is, is there fruit right now? Are you following Christ right now? If you're following Christ, then you should see that, yeah, I have more joy in my heart than I used to. I'm getting better at loving people. I am more patient. I have more peace. And if that's not the case, then you start to ask questions. Then you start to say, okay, either Lord... I need to come to you and really repent of my sins because apparently I've never done that. I need to be born again. Or, Lord, I need revival. I don't know the difference. Your Holy Spirit's going to have to tell me which it is. Either way, focus on the fruit. Not on technicalities of, well, I prayed this and I don't know, brother so-and-so thinks you're supposed to pray this instead. Folks, nobody's going to miss out on heaven because they prayed the wrong thing on the day of their salvation. Nobody's going to miss out on, on eternal glory because when they walked the aisle, someone gave them bad instructions. God's not going to keep anybody out of heaven on a technicality. The question you need to ask yourself is, do I see fruit? And if I don't see fruit, Lord, change my heart. Turn me around. I need your Holy Spirit to come take control. And I need from this day forward to start abiding in you. That's the answer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for not just saving us from an eternity separated from you, but saving us from our own sin. Lord, the frustrating part for us is the sin doesn't go away immediately. But Lord, it goes away as long as we stick with you, as long as we abide in you. So I pray, Lord, teach us to do that. Teach us to seek your face daily and to do all those things that keep us in connection with your Holy Spirit so that we can be transformed. And I pray that we would be a church that truly makes disciples like that. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.